Let's humble our hearts before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you on another Sabbath day, a day to focus on your word, a day to focus on you, a day to give up the ways of the world and to understand the truth that you have for us as we strive to walk that narrow pathway of Yahshua the Messiah. We thank you, Almighty Yahweh, for this day, for your guidance, for all that you do for us. Now we also say a special prayer for Sister Mildred Deck, who is entering the sunset of her days, that you would comfort her, that you would bless her, that we would remember all the faith that she had to show and all that she did and all the good she did for, for all of us who knew her. Be with the family and comfort them as well. And so now we ask for your guidance on this service, that the words we speak would be yours, and that what we might say might impact what we do. This prayer and petition now we ask in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. You may be seated. You know, traveling down the highway, you notice a lot of things. And you can usually tell a police patrol car before you see all the blue and, and red lights on top by the long procession that follow him the uninvited escorts, drivers who would otherwise speed on by, breaking the speed limit, suddenly find out they need to be a little more obedient to those limits on the road, little laws on the road, and they become very conscious of their speed. Afraid to pass the officer as he travels the speed limit, they end up moving with him. The procession sometimes goes to quite a parade. It must be both amusing and exasperating to the law officer who uh, who knows statistically that half the people would be speeding if he weren't there. So human nature is such that without any enforcement, people kind of do what they want to do. An officer once told me, he says, laws are not enforced. Laws that are not enforced are not obeyed. This illustrates what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 5 and in verse 20. He said, moreover, the law entered and the, that the offense might abound. In other words, that we might become aware of how we can break Yahweh's will. It's the law, the standard that makes the offense or sin abound, just as The patrolman on the law he stands for makes us aware of transgressing the speed limit. Yahweh's laws reveal just how big a sinner we are. Now notice the second half of that verse. I didn't read it on purpose at that time, but I do now. But where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. It does not say that because of grace there is no law. Notice that. Neither is it up to us to decide whether to be under the law or to be under grace. In other words, Yahweh's grace overcame. Yahweh's grace overcame the death penalty for our transgressions that we all rightly deserve. Each of us is a sinner. The Bible tells us that. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of Yahweh. Grace is how lawbreaking is sometimes dealt with. If a jury finds you guilty of some kind of crime, infraction, but the judge has some mercy and lets you off, lets you go free, he's showing grace. What he's not showing is that he's, by doing so, abolishing the law that puts you there, that puts you under arrest. He's showing that without a standard, you would not have an even have been charged with what you did. He stands for the standard. He judges by that standard. Judges judge by the law. That's exactly what Yahshua's going to do when he judges those people who Yahweh has called for his kingdom. Now read the next verse. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life, by Yahshua the Messiah, 
our master, Romans 5.21. This verse also shows that, that we would turn to righteousness because of grace, you see, not in spite of grace, not because there is no grace. And who was obedient in all points? None other than our very example, Yahshua the Messiah. Our Savior said, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. John 14, 3. This is a very important passage to remember when you're speaking to your friends, you know, who say, well, I'm, under the law. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Well, what did Yahshua say? As the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. He didn't say, as the Father gave me commandment, I just teach grace. He didn't come to establish a new faith without the law. He said he would continue to do as his Father's will mandated, not his own. Now, the word grace comes from the Greek charis in the New Testament. Charis and refers to Yahweh's favor or kindness. Kindness. He showed that kindness both in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Many times. He wanted to start over. You know, he, he got so exasperated by Israel. He says to Moses, I'm just going to wipe them out. All of them. I'm going to start over with you, you and your family. Kind of like I did with Abraham. I'll just start over with you and your family. Moses says, don't do that. Don't do that. They'll just say you brought us out here to kill us. Yahweh was so exasperated, but he showed grace. He showed grace and allowed Israel to live even though they didn't deserve to live at that point. So the purpose of grace is to bring us to repentance and obedience. Romans 2.4 says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of Elohim leads you to Repentance. You see, they're not mutually exclusive. Grace leads to repentance. What about now all these churches that say, well, we're not under law, we're under grace. What are you going to repent of? There's no law. You don't have to repent. There's no law. There's nothing you've done wrong. Why Why repent? The doctrine is diametrically opposed to the scriptures. Strong defines charis as graciousness, as gratifying of manner or act, especially the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. It's not a permanent condition of man. It's not something that uh, now is innate in us. It is something Yahweh grants to us. And now we do something about it. That's the point. But that is not what the fourth basic doctrine of Calvinism says. His version is known as irresistible grace or efficacious grace. What does that mean? Efficacious grace. John Calvin believed in unconditional election to eternal life. And this is where a lot of the church doctrines come from. Let's say once saved, always saved. That's what Calvin taught, basically. Once you're saved, quote unquote, uh, you've got it made. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to change that. See, that's why you don't need obedience, because it doesn't matter. Boy, what a, what a twist of the word. You cannot resist Yahweh's grace and his determination to save you just as those on their way to destruction can do nothing about it. And for those who are chosen, salvation, resistance, as they say, is futile. Is that true? No. Of course, it's not futile. That's Calvinism, though. But it's not scripture. It's not what Paul said about the danger of being a castaway if he doesn't keep himself under control. I can be a castaway. I can do all this preaching, all these, all these many assemblies that I started, all in Macedonia and the Middle East and all over the place. I can do all of that, and then in the end, I can lose it all. That's what, that's what Paul said. I myself can be a castaway. That's not what Calvin taught, and how come Calvin couldn't see it? Did he just kind of gloss over that part of the Bible? His time frame was way off. Yahweh chooses us at the resurrection, but not before. He calls us before, but he doesn't choose us then. Elect means chosen. Calvinists say that being called, those being called, are already chosen. He missed that part of the scripture too. 
Big difference. A key mistake that had been impacting churchianity for hundreds and hundreds of years since the 16th century. Titus 2.11 says that the grace of Elohim that brings salvation has appeared unto all people, and yet millions have rejected it. Each person is accountable for his own life, according to John 12.48. Those who reject the teachings of Yahshua are held accountable. He that rejected me has received not my words, he says, has one that judges him, The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. In the last day. Your last day, you know, or the last day. At the end of your life, that's when the judgment falls. Or at the end of this present age, when the resurrection occurs. Personal accountability is the central teaching of scripture. All the way through I could, even if I wanted to, I could not get past that teaching in Scripture. Everyone is personally accountable for the life they live. And yet, churchianity likes to gloss over that. Say, grace saves you no matter what. If we have no accountability, we are on autopilot. We just live our life, go through the motions, and in the end, we're saved. If there's no accountability, if there's nothing we can do one way or the other to be saved or lost, then the whole plan of salvation is just a wash. You know, I think part of the Reformation, and of course we know it started with Luther, basically not not started with him but got rolling with him, is that he didn't like the Roman church, what they were doing. And I think it's almost like an overkill. We don't have to do anything. Now, Roman church, of course, taught you've got to do this. You've got to do these sacraments. You've got all these things that they still do today. You've got to go through all emotions. We know a, a Catholic got up at 4 in the morning, went to Mass. He wouldn't miss it for the world. That was something he felt he had to do. And I think Luther, Calvin, who built on Luther, had that same bias. And so they're going to go with the complete opposite. Don't do anything. That's kind of what comes through to me when I read the histories. Personal accountability is a central teaching of the scriptures. The Bible nowhere teaches unconditional grace. No matter what you do, you're saved. If it did, Yahweh is obligated to save everyone, right? Why not? That's what it leads to, including unrepentant sinners. Grace exists because of not being outside the law, but in condition with the law. A mutual operation, so to speak. Grace comes into play whenever forgiveness for law-breaking is granted. But then what? But then what? Do we go on now? Well, I got it made. Neither does grace nullify the law. Grace simply means mercy or clemency. Mercy or clemency. If we didn't have it, none of us would have any hope. But he gives us mercy and clemency. It means the penalty is lessened or removed in some cases. As when we believe in Yahshua and his sacrifice. The penalty then is removed. He paid it. But that means what? Forever? No, for sins that are past. Sins that are past. Law and grace, by definition, are not in opposition to each other. You can't have grace without an infraction of a statute. You know, the judge says, oh, okay, you can go. You didn't do anything wrong, but you can go. Make any sense? Of course not. Something was broken, a law, a statute, something that brought you into the courtroom, and he gives the grace, should he choose, on different circumstances, of course, to forgive you for that. And it brings believers to a state of repentance and justification. The law provides for sanctification. See, justification means just as if you have not sinned. The difference between that and sanctification is sanctification is setting apart. Now you set apart your life to live for him, not like the world. 
So grace demands personal change. There is an obligation to conform to Yahweh. John Calvin, you didn't get it. You missed it. You missed it by a mile, and you got everybody twisted up because of it. You got it very wrong. Amazing how someone that brilliant can completely miss the core teaching of Scripture, isn't it? The teaching of Yahshua, the apostles, and what they did and what they taught and how they lived. I don't, I don't, I mean, reading the Bible with blinders on, you miss it. I don't understand how this could happen, but it did. Well, I understand. I understand the old Hasatan had something to do with it. This point has become a major stumbling block to so many today. They, they've all been told all their lives that they're under grace, not the law, like the guy I argued with one time in Chicago. He just, he could not see it. I'd bring up a passage and he would overlook that passage like they always do and bring up something else and then bring up something else and bring up something else, twisting it as he went along. It's become a major stumbling block. If there were no law in effect, then the contention could not be we are under grace. Think about it. There is no law. There's no point in grace because you don't need it, right? Because you didn't break anything, right? So just by definition, when they say we're under grace, that also has to include that there is a law in effect or there's no need for grace. Think about it. Forgiveness is meaningless if there's nothing to forgive because there's no infraction committed. You know, serious problems have catapulted from teaching that the New Testament believers are now under, not under the law, but under grace. Removing the law has removed the need for repentance. There's no need, I guess, to get baptized for many. You don't have to repent and get baptized because there's no need for it. They're under grace. What's the point? They all want to change because they think they don't need to. So no one talks about sin anymore. And then really, if you believe in grace as they believe it, there is no sin to worry about. Because sin exists because something was broken. The law. And that belief has contributed greatly to the general lawlessness of our society itself. Why are things getting so bad? Because so many are not preaching the word. We were a different nation back, you know, years ago when fire and brimstone was preached from one continent to another from the pulpits. People had a regard and respect for Yahweh and his word. Going to church today is like going bowling or to a dance. You do what everyone else does while you're there, And then you leave as you go out the door and it's business as usual, like you never even went. Just live as you did before. Only a few will attend to try to learn how to be a follower of Yahshua through living as he did, through righteous living as he did. Only a few. The problem is they don't always know to do that because they're not aware of the standards. And we come along, we say, you have to keep the Sabbath to be like Yahshua, as he did, the feast days, as he did. They're not aware of that. And they think that we're just making things up. No, that's part of it. Read it. Read through the scriptures and study it out. You'll find out, yeah, he did. He was obedient. Paul in Romans 3.20 defines for us the purpose of Yahweh's laws. Therefore, by... The deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The Phillips translation brings it out this way. Indeed, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. I love that. Straight edge of the law shows us how we don't measure up. How crooked we really are. But the mantra today is that the law was nailed to the cross. No wonder most don't know what sin is and what repentance is. How can you know you are a sinner if you don't even know there was anything that you sinned against? It's useless to arrest someone for speeding when there are no speed limits. Years ago, Montana had no speed limits. You could go zipping through there. 
All the sign says was reasonable and prudent. Man, you could let her rip. And even right now, you could, what is it, 80, 80 miles an hour out west? Doesn't take long to get from here to there when you're driving out that way. But if there's no law, how can he arrest you? Well, I mean, if you're just crazy over the top, then they could, could arrest you. If you're dangerous, I guess, they can arrest you. Going through a school zone at 95 is pretty much, you know, going to get you arrested. Well, in town, I guess there, there were speed limits. But on the highway is let her rip. Anyway, that's not the same, I guess, anymore since the 55 speed limit was imposed years ago. And then they changed. Anyway, because of all these misteachings, sin is almost never brought up. Modern psychology, oh my, modern psychology has entered the pulpit. And that changed everything. It led the masses to believe that it is self-destructive to consider yourself a sinner. It's not good for your esteem. You shouldn't do that. That's bad. Just the complete opposite of what the word says. We need to humble ourselves before Yahweh. And you need more self-esteem, they'll say, not less. Pump yourself up. Not humble yourself before Almighty Yahweh. Admit that you don't measure up. It's the satanic lie all over again. You can be as a mighty one, Eve, Adam. Keep up what you're doing. And even do more of it. Realize your full potential. That's code for glorify yourself. See, that's the old, the traditional, the original sin. Self before Yahweh. Glorify yourself. The fallout is a society that behaves as if they're all little mighty ones living for themselves, doing for themselves, not worrying about the other guy. <coughs> because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. So it feeds on itself. Society just gets worse and worse. Politicians anxiously scratch their heads looking for a political solution to the problems when most of the problems are spiritual. And the ball was dropped by the churches years ago. Change man's heart and you will change society. Simple as that. Because each man is part of society, making up society. You want utopia? Change the human heart. That's where it lies. We're much like Israel of Judges 17.6. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's what happens when there's no respect for law and order. You just do your own thing, whatever you feel you want to do. Suppose I come up to you and say, good news. You're not going to be charged with, uh, with a hit and run. You respond with, what? What? I didn't hit anyone. You may not even take, a, you might even take offense to my comment. Now let's say you know you are guilty of a serious infraction. You face years of time, huge fines perhaps, and lawsuits that will take everything you have and even your pound of flesh. Now when I come to you with the news that someone has stepped in and you got off the charge, you're considered innocent. Then it really means something, doesn't it? Just telling you the good news that your fine was paid without explaining that you've broken the law means little. And that's what grace amounts to for most people. It doesn't mean anything. Because they don't think they've done anything wrong. Some do. More and more people don't. You are under grace, the minister says. And you respond, well, I didn't even know I needed it. And he doesn't even explain what it is because he doesn't understand it. The true, complete understanding. Many people are told week after week from the pulpit that they're under grace. And the response is a predictable ho-hum not realizing the gravity of the situation, the fact that they stand to lose eternal life, eternal salvation through further sin, but they don't understand that because the penalty doesn't even exist because they have been taught that there is no law. You see, it just it's meaningless. It's just fluff. It's nothing. It's ear-tickling because they don't understand 
that they're in dire need of the blood of Yahshua and repentance and baptism and his spirit to help us obey. How much, Jude 4 says, how much more, how much, how much sore punishment suppose you shall be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the son of Elohim and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. Just a common thing, unholy, doesn't mean anything. And has done despot unto the spirit of grace. That's Hebrews 10.29. Talks about that. The truth is, the Savior came to magnify the law, not diminish it, not to throw it away, but to magnify, make it even more binding because he's going to put it in our heart. Put something in your heart, you know. He has a heart for this. What does that mean? That means he really inside believes it and wants it. He has a heart for it. David had a heart for Yahweh. And he didn't care if they made fun of him dancing out there in his underwear. He was so happy to bring that ark back. He had a heart for Yahweh. Look at what? We can return to Yahweh now. We can return and our faith can be restored and our worship can be right again. The truth is, Yahshua magnified the statutes of Yahweh. With his death, he paid the ultimate penalty for sin. That one thing that no one else could ever do, nothing could ever do that but his own life, so that we have hope. Putting it simply, if no law exists, then there is no sin. If our Savior abolished the law, as everybody says, it seems, then there's no need of his sacrifice for sin. You don't need it. And you know, thinking about it, do they actually celebrate his sacrifice? Do they really celebrate his sacrifice? They celebrate his resurrection, but they don't sacrifice, they don't believe, really, down deep inside that the sacrifice is that important. Or they would keep Passover, which we are commanded to do, and not the resurrection. But it all ties together, you see. If there's no sin, there's no need for a redeemer. There's no need for sacrifice. So we don't even observe the Passover. We talk about his resurrection. It all fits, when you think about it, in a misapplication of scripture. Didn't he know, think about this, that if he abolished the law, either then or in a few years later, if he did that, there would be no need for him to even pay the penalty for it. You know? He wouldn't have to pay for our sins because he's going to or has been abolishing the law. That's how senseless common church teachings boil down to their essence, really are. You know, we could just, if he's going to abolish the law in a few years, just wait it out. Why worry? Romans 5.13 reads plainly, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So how can he have paid the price for our sins if sins don't exist because the law has been abolished? I want to repeat that. So how can he have paid the penalty for sin if sins don't exist because he took away the law? And that applies today. I would like a few answers to these things. These people who preach from pulpits this message that we no longer have to worry about obeying Yahweh. I'd like some answers But the law wasn't suspended until his death, they might say. Same result, no need to obey, either now or then. Without Yahweh's law to define and establish it, sin is open to interpretation, and so that's what you get. What is sin? What is sin? Oh, it's, uh, it's dancing and drinking. Another says it's meat on Friday. Another says, well, coffee is sinful. I worked with a man once who had that belief in a certain denomination. Still another of a psychological bent might say that sin means not having achieved your full potential. 
That's Norman Vincent Peale stepping in there. And so it goes into the mists of ridiculousness. When you don't have it right before you, defining for you what it is, it's wide open. It's the wild, wild west. But what is sin in Yahweh's eyes? That's all that matters. John writes, whoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4, we all know it. We all know it. And it seems like nobody out there knows it. They make make up their own mind what it is. When we sin, we're convicted by the law as transgressors, James 2.9 tells us. If there's no law, then none of us ever sins. Even my Methodist grandmother knew better than to believe that. She knew she was a sinner. She just didn't quite get it. How she was a sinner. I'm just not pleasing Yahweh. How? How, Grandma? How come you're... What what do you mean by I'm not pleasing him? What do you mean? Well, I do things that he doesn't like. Like what? What what, what is it that he doesn't like? I can never get her to come to the nitty-gritty of what sin was. And that's the same kind of response you'll get from many out there in churchianity. Because they will not, they will not bend to that three-letter word, law. Fact, we're all guilty of sin because we all break the law. Paul writes, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of Elohim, Romans 3.23. And that directly opposes the no law grace doctrine. It doesn't, it, it conflicts with scripture, plain and simple. The reason Sabbath is just another day to most churchgoers and the name Yahweh is just another one of his names and worldly holidays are just as good as holy days is that the law has been forgotten. Yahweh's will laid out clearly and succinctly in scripture is not taught. For 2,000 years, man has busily been making up his own worship. The church has authority over the word. That's what they say. That's what the Roman church says. In place of truth are a plethora of man-made doctrines that have no power to convert. These are the smooth things that were prophesied in Isaiah 30, verse 10, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. They don't want to hear. Don't talk to me about the law. Don't talk to me about obedience. Don't talk to me about right things. Speak unto me smooth things, prophesy deceits, things that I can make up, things that are made up. Give me some psychology that makes me feel good. Is it any wonder that so many see the church as little more than another social club with little or no binding power on their lives? This is where it all comes from. No impact, no impact. Gone are the fear-evoking messages that made people confront their sins and leave in tears at camp meetings where fire and brimstone were spoken and preached and people left in tears and realized, man, I got to change my life. And then you didn't have mass shootings nearly every month or unhinged wackos gunning police down or politicians advocating physical violence against their opponents. The moral decline is happening just as prophesied. It's right there, brethren, right in your newspaper. Isaiah 59, 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. We know them. In transgressing and lying against Yahweh and departing away from our Elohim, speaking oppression and revolt, convincing and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Man, what a commentary on our world. And judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth. And he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. They hate the righteous, in other words. And Yahweh saw it 
And it displeased him that there was no judgment. Nobody knew right from wrong. Nobody knew right from wrong. Whatever, whatever they felt in their heart was right or wrong. A real fear of Yahweh has been replaced by the smooth psychology of the likes of Norman Vincent Peale and his power of positive thinking that has influenced preachers for the last 65 years. Brought in psychology. Brought in psychology. And there were major TV preachers who preached it from then on. The guy in the Crystal Cathedral comes to mind. A review of the book he wrote, Peel wrote, says a person with positive thinking mentally anticipates happiness, health, and success. He believes that he or she can overcome any obstacle and difficulty. No mention of scripture. No mention of Yahweh. You do it on your own. You're your almighty one. Forget biblical standards. Today the culture tells the minister what to preach. And the trend is away from self-reproach and towards self-esteem. Make the audience feel good. And they'll come back again next week and the week after. Unless politically correct, few dare to tickle, tackle, I should say, fundamental scriptural teachings. Instead of resisting social trends, the modern church is in Babylonian captivity to the culture. And when the necessity for a changed heart is taught in scripture, when it's been removed, it's a sure bet that few hearts will change. Psalm 19.7 reads, The law of Yahweh is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. You know, you tell somebody the testimony of Scripture as it reads in Scripture, and oftentimes their eyes say, Wow, I didn't realize that. Who was it? Somebody this week. Oh, I guess it was Ryan. He talked to the delivery man who was delivering something up at the uh, building. And the guy asked, what, what are you people? What are you doing? What, what, what is this? And Ryan gave him some good nuggets of truth. And the guy just, wow, I didn't realize that. You know, He showed him the difference between the nominal preaching, the nominal you know, message, and what the Bible really teaches. And he was kind of amazed. Hopefully he'll do something about it. Think about it. The law is perfect, converting the soul. When we're not in line with Yahweh's laws, we are outside his favor. Matthew 7.23, Yahshua says, And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Iniquity, what's that? Lawlessness. What too few people understand is that there are there are more than two paths to follow. One of the traditional dogmas says, Yahshua did it all, and it makes no difference what we do in our quest for salvation. We live by faith alone. Sola fide was the call of the Reformation. Faith alone. The other creed says we can rely on ourselves. You know, I mean, why even have the Bible? We can rely on ourselves. By dutifully fulfilling certain sacraments and penitential ritual, we can be sure of eternal reward. Just go through the motions, you know, faithfully all your life, and in the end, get a big A on your report card, and you got it made because you did the ritual. Neither of these beliefs holds the answer. Neither takes into account the covenant that Yahweh made with Israel, starting off with Abraham and that he makes today with spiritual Israel. Neither of them takes into account Yahweh's plan, Yahweh's purpose, what he started with, what he expects of us. The lesson of the Bible is found in the Old Covenant, the Testament, and the New Covenant, the Testament. People talk about the Old and New Testaments and don't even realize they're talking about an agreement between Yahweh and his people, between Yahweh and those that will be chosen an all-powerful creator who set the standard, who set the mold that we have to fit into. They don't even believe 
That's what he's talking about. No one ever told him that. I remember when someone says, well, you know, I want to know the Bible. My problem is I don't know where to start. How do I, how do I know the Bible? Do I start in Genesis and read through it? Do I take a topic and study it? I said, whatever works for you. Main thing is you get into the word, and you'll figure it all out if you stay faithful to your study. That covenant agreement says, you do this and I'll do that. You'll be obedient to me and worship only me. And that was a big one with Israel in Canaan. They just love those Canaanite deities. We're going to the next. Brother Ryan's been working on a lot of the charts showing a lot of the pagan-ism going on back in, uh, in Canaan when Israel was taken over. And instead of obliterating it, they started to merge with it. Kind of like what happened with the modern church. They merged with these teachings. But Yahweh says, worship only me. Only me. First commandment. And I will bless you above all people on earth because you are sinful and will occasionally fall short. I offer my grace to cover your sin when you do sin. That means you don't go back and keep doing sin. If you remain faithful till death, I will reward you with a crown of life in my kingdom. It's all worth it. That's for all the marbles. That's what we're all living for, right? I hope so. Malachi 3.16. Then they that feared Yahweh spake often one to another. And Yahweh hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared Yahweh. Wouldn't you like to be in that book? I hope we are. I hope our record of our life is in that book. And he'll turn to it and he'll read it. What we did in our life for those that feared Yahweh and that thought upon his name. His name. He said, they shall be mine, says Yahweh of hosts. In the day that I make up my jewels, I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. See, we serve him, not ourselves, not some organization, not some big denomination. We serve him. And what he says, it's not hard to figure out. He tells us how we figure it out. And he said, if you do that, I'll spare you. I'll spare you in the day when my rewards are, are uh, given out. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves Yahweh and him that serves him not. Either serve him or you don't. Either obey him or you don't. Either keep the Sabbath or you don't. Some people waffle. Oh, you know, I go to this uh, other church. I know they don't use the names, but they do keep the Sabbath. Either you serve Yahweh or you don't. I, I can't see how you can worship when you're not worshiping him by identifying him by his name. I don't see how you can do that. Or, oh, I, I just, I just uh, pick out a, a, uh, a group to go and, you know, fellowship with. I know they don't believe in a lot of what you, you guys teach, but uh, i got to have fellowship. How can you have fellowship with darkness or even partial darkness? You know, How about that? How about uh, someone that doesn't go all the way with the word? Why would you want to not fellowship with those who go all the way with it? What is truly amazing about Yahweh's grace is he would make it freely available when none of his creation deserves it. it uh, he loves us. He loves us that much. Once received, we have to give up our old ways of sin. Notice, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Yeah, we forbid. How shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? Romans 6, 1 to 2. How can we do that? It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy to accept his grace and then live in sin, continuing on in sin. This is a very revealing passage. Paul tells us that even though grace abounds, sin still exists. That means the law still exists and is still operating. What is his law? It's his standards. People don't like to preach the law anymore. It's a standard. I mean... Does it make any sense? What does Yahweh expect of me? It's right there. 
Ten Commandments, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. That's what he expects of me. Why would I not want to know and understand and live by what he expects of me? What else would I want to do? Live by Martin Luther? Live by a cardinal, a pope, a bishop, whatever they say? What do I want to live by Yahweh? Suppose by his own grace, a governor reprieves a death row prisoner, even though the prisoner had been found guilty of first-degree murder. How do you think the governor, in our scenario, would react, discovering that once freed, this man went out and murdered again? Again. The one that they pardoned by grace went immediately out and committed the same crime again. What was the point of his pardon? There'd be no point to it. So much for lessons learned. So much for the governor's grace. How does Yahweh feel when he forgives us of sin and we go out and don't make any changes? Yahweh feels the same way. His grace and we turn right around and deliberately sin again, arguing that grace does away with the law. That's what it boils down to. I don't need it. It doesn't. I don't need the law. I don't need to obey it. I'm under his grace. People don't understand grace. Yahweh feels, what's the use? Did my son die in vain? Shed his blood? Go through horrible, horrible beatings. Horrible trials. Was that all for nothing? Grace no more does away with obedience than a governor's pardon of a convict abolishes the death penalty. Almighty Yahweh in Hebrews 10 addresses this issue head on. He explains that those who despise the law that Moses brought from Sinai died without mercy. You despise the law, he's he's had enough mercy for you. Then he asks us today, how much more Sore punishment, suppose you shall be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the son of Elohim and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, set apart, set apart for a different way of life, an unholy thing, and has done despot unto insulted, in other words, the spirit of grace. You insult Yahweh when you just turn your back on him. You insult Yahshua. The very judge is going to judge you. Wow. <laughs> I don't think I want to be in your shoes. I want to, wow, I wouldn't want to ever be accused of that. For we know him that has said, vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense, says Yahweh. And again, Yahweh shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living Elohim. Verses 29 to 31. A fearful thing. You don't want to be in that situation. What's also amazing about Yahweh's grace is that he made the first step toward reconciliation through sending his son. Without that magnanimous act, we would be lost, dead forever in our sins, with no hope. No hope. Once we realize the incredible act of his pardon, through his son, through the death of his son, we should want no more of the sin that destroys us. And that is achieved through repentance, immersion, and by knowing and following his laws of liberty that set us free from destruction. I remember learning, starting to study the Bible as a teen, and I remember sometimes it was hard. It was hard to get into the word. Once I did... I felt a change coming over me. And just because I was into the word and his spirit was working and I felt good. I felt really good. Knowing and following his ways set us free from our ways. And it opens up a whole vista of a new understanding of life. Yahweh offers his grace freely on those who would become one of his. But does that priceless gift carry any responsibility on our part? Is there something that we need to do? Does that come through in his teachings? 
What about anciently? Grace was operating through the Old Testament, believe it or not. Everybody thinks about grace. Now, with Yahshua, we're under grace. You were under grace in the Old Testament. What are you talking about? Look at Exodus 22. I'm not going to go through these, but Exodus 22, 27, 33, 19, Numbers 825. I should have had these on the screen. Psalm 85, I'm sorry, 8615, Isaiah 3019, and Joel 213. Grace in the Old Testament. And what were they doing? They were commanded to be obedient to the law. They're not mutually exclusive. They go together. They go together. Grace and obedience to his word. Even back in Genesis, we read that Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Chapter 6, verse 8. As the Restoration Study Bible note reads, Yahweh's grace, first mentioned here, is just as active in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Without it, all life on the planet would have been obliterated by the flood. That one man and his family held it all together for the rest of us. Imagine. Noah found grace, and it was that grace because he was righteous in his life. He found grace that didn't eliminate his need to obey Yahweh. I'm sure every day on that ark, he was thankful for Yahweh's grace, his mercy. All those people around were drowning. He had mercy on him. And is willing to pardon those who turn from sin. Isaiah 55, 7, Acts 15, 11 tells us that the Old Testament fathers will be saved by the grace of Yahshua. They weren't there with Yahshua, but they had the hope of Yahshua. And they had the hope that his life would be sacrificed for them, his blood. They had that hope. They had that expectation. And Yahweh passed by before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh El, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. I'm reading Exodus, by the way. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and that will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, you better shape up. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. You know, when you look at the whole scenario, you look at the whole, the whole thing, the whole account in Scripture, it all comes together. And you can look at Old Testament, you can look at New Testament, you come up with the same thing. You come up with Yahweh's grace, expecting us now to live a different life. So may his grace of forgiveness be on all of us. May we remember that every day we live. To pray that he would help us to live according to his word. To trust in him. Live lives fit chosen for the kingdom because that's what we're all living for. May Yahweh bless you.